you have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 16. We'll read the last few verses, starting in verse 23 of Jesus' farewell discourse here in John 14 through 16. John chapter 16, starting in verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You may be seated. And as you do, let us together go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that we just heard from Jesus' own lips, that his victory is our victory, that we have everything we need to live as your disciples. We pray that you would encourage us, that you would comfort us, that you would instruct us by your word. Spirit, would you apply your word to the hearts of your people? May that same spirit give me power as your preacher. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On March 9th, 1832, at the ripe old age of 23, Abraham Lincoln officially began his political career running for a seat in the Illinois General Assembly. He would finish eighth in a, a field of 12, a fair amount of people running, but we know this would be the only, this would be the beginning of Lincoln's famous political career. And to announce his candidacy, Lincoln published a statement, what history has coined as his first political announcement in the Sangamo Journal in Illinois, laying out his goals and his ambitions. And near the very beginning of his announcement, he penned the following words. But yet it is folly to undertake works of this or any kind without first knowing that we are able to finish them as half-finished work generally proves to be labor lost. Lincoln gave the citizens of Sangamo County his honest take. What's the point in doing any of this work if we can't finish the task? What good are all the promises if the work remains incomplete in the end? Now in the context of Lincoln's speech, he was emphasizing the much needed transportation improvements. Illinois at that time needed roads, canals, better rail systems. As we come to this, the end of Jesus' farewell discourse, we're not concerned about roads and rail systems, though there are plenty of potholes in Little Rock if you just drive around. But Jesus is concerned with his anxious and sorrowful disciples, and he wants them to be encouraged that there will be no labor lost. The work will not be left half-finished. 
Every promise that Jesus has made to these disciples will come to fruition. Every word of comfort will prove to be a true word. Every blessing that he has walked them through of belonging to him will be experienced. Jesus himself is going to complete the task. He says so in verse 28 where he says, I came from the Father and have come into the world and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Therefore, all disciples, past, present, and future, should have encouragement and find courage. You and I, as disciples of Jesus Christ, will endure faithfully and joyfully because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our time this morning, will look at these at three realities or blessings born out of Christ's finished work as he reveals it here in John chapter 16. They're there for you in the bulletin. Access to the Father, relationship with the Father, and the peace and the victory of Christ. And these are present blessings for all those who trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and in the empty tomb. These realities have sustained, are sustaining, and will sustain all of God's people until the consummation. So let us seek not only to understand them better, as good as that would be for us, but let us also seek to live in light of them, for our joy, for our encouragement, and our strength to the glory of our work-finishing Lord and Savior. And the first truth that Jesus gives us and his disciples is access to the Father. Because of his death and resurrection, his disciples can confidently approach the throne of grace. Now Jesus has already taught this idea of asking God, of approaching God with our requests in the farewell discourse. We've seen it in chapter 14. We've seen it again in chapter 15. What we find here is there's an additional time stamp that Jesus puts on it. If you look at the beginning of 23, he says, in that day. And what day is that exactly? It's the day that he's already spoken of in the previous verse. The day we looked at last week when the disciples' deep sorrow and anguish will be turned on its head to joy, to rejoicing, to delight. As they behold their risen Savior in the flesh standing before them. On that day, everything was going to change. And when it comes to the disciples' access to the Father, Jesus wants them to know three primary things that are probably elementary for us, but still useful for us to be reminded of. The first is that their access is directly to the Father. Look at what he says. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And then he repeats it later on in verse 26, where he says, I don't say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. He's aware the disciples are still going to have questions. They're still going to need comfort. They're still going to need encouragement and counsel and strength. And with Jesus no longer by their side, Jesus no longer sitting at table with them, Jesus no longer walking on the road with them, where are they to go in their hour of need? Jesus says, go right to the Father. Kids, for those of you who are here with us this morning, what do you do when you have questions for your parents? Or when you're in school and you're not sure of something? 
and you want to ask the teacher, what do you do? You go right to them directly. You don't take a number. You don't submit a request form and hope they'll eventually get back to you. Or you don't leave a message and say, whenever's best for you, please, would you answer my question? Jesus wants his followers to know that they have this type of privileged access to go directly to the Father because of his finished work. They don't need to plead with Jesus to ask the Father. They don't need to plead with Jesus to get the Father to act. They can simply go directly to him and ask him to give them what they need. And the second thing that Jesus wants them to grasp, in addition to the direct access that they have, is that the direct access they have is through Christ. He emphasizes it with this tag of in my name. He says it over and over again. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. And then again down in 26, in that day you will ask in my name. Jesus is pointing to his intercessory work. The work that Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives to continue making. We just sang about it. The work that enables us to come before the throne. And now what exactly does praying in Jesus' name mean? Does it give disciples both then and now the expectation that if we simply say in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers, we're going to get everything that we want? In his short book, Persistent Prayer, Guy Richard provides three, we'll call them framing principles around what it means for us to pray in Jesus' name. And here's what he says. We pray as those who have access to God through the blood of Christ. We can walk boldly into the presence of God and know that we have a right to be there because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's the first principle. Then he says we pray in the hope that God will answer us because of what Jesus has done for us. That the blood of Christ that renders our persons acceptable will also render our prayers acceptable. And then that third principle that he gives is we pray for things that are in keeping with the work of Christ. Obviously this means our requests, but also our prayers that unbelievers would come to the faith. That the Lord would finish the work that he has started in us and through us. And also that we would pray that he would come quickly. That Satan's kingdom would be destroyed. That his enemies would be crushed under his feet. Praying in Jesus' name means we have access. We have the hope of an answer. And we have God aligning our purposes with his. Ultimately, praying in the name of Jesus is a demonstration of our humble reliance upon our God to supply his people with everything that we need. Jesus wants his disciples to be reminded they can go before the Father and they can go in his name and find him to give them all that they need. And then third, Jesus says this access to God through Christ is for our joy. Look at what he says at the end of verse 24. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Prayer, asking itself, not the answer, 
is a producer of joy. This fits with how David closes Psalm 16 where he says, Lord, in your presence there is joy evermore. Once again, I'd focus our attention as I have throughout this farewell discourse to the book of Acts where we see many of the promises Jesus made being fulfilled in real time. Not only do we find the disciples being effective witnesses to Christ, but they're also a people filled with joy, even in the midst of incredible suffering and trial and tribulation. And I would argue that much of that joy flows out of their faithfulness to pray, to go directly to the Father through the Son and plead with him to give them what they need. Just in the first half of the book of Acts, we find the disciples praying in chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 6, 10, 12, and 13. I could go on. Paul's ministry only pushes prayer on higher alert. Yes, prayer would have been vital to their ministry, but it was also vital to their joy. Which leads us to the question, is that how we view the access we have to the Father through the Son? as the very source of our joy? Or are you often like me, viewing prayer more of a religious duty, or dare I say, sometimes even a burden? Jesus promises abundant joy as we take full advantage of the access that we have been given to the Father through him. So let us take full advantage. Let us storm the throne room of grace and ask God to give us what we need. Go to the Father directly. Ask him for what you need most. Plead with him to continue to do his good work in you and through you. And then let us as a church also take full advantage and storm the throne room of grace. Come when the church gathers to pray. Yes, be engaged here on Sunday mornings in the worship service as our prayers are offered up throughout the course of the service. But I would also plead with you and even exhort you to join us Wednesday evenings in the lobby here at 5.30. And then join us again on the third Sunday of every month at 5 o'clock. Adjust your schedules if you have to. Bring your kids along because I guarantee you your kids won't be as loud as my kids. Come and pray. Not only does the church need individuals praying, which it does, it needs the church praying. We cannot do anything without prayer. It is vital for our life and ministry. If you've been wondering why Tim every Sunday has been telling you 5.30 every week, come on Wednesday, it's because he understands the vitality of our prayer to what we do here as the church. It's also vital for our joy. I would argue that those who are gathering, you're seeing our joy. I would also argue that the people we are seeing coming, the three, four weeks in a row of new members, is a production of our prayers, of God answering the prayers of his people. So come, as individuals, come as the church, pray with us. In Christ, we have been given access to the Father. Let us come boldly and ask him to give us all that we need to live faithfully and joyfully for him. Jesus shifts then from the disciples' access to their relationship with the Father. 
Because of his finished work, Christ's death and resurrection, the disciples can know the Father and his love. While access is great, and it is, it only means so much if there's not a relationship there. I could be granted access to go to the Oval Office and have a sit-down with the president. We could have a conversation. However, he doesn't know me. I don't really know him. I have no idea how he views me. I have no idea if he actually wants to be there in the office with me. He could be thinking of a hundred other things that he'd rather do than spend time with me. Jesus assures his troubled and confused disciples of their relationship with the Father in the days ahead. It's not going to be like that. They're going to know the Father. They're going to know that he wants to be with them. He says, you will know the Father. Look at what he says in verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus admits for his confused, struggling to understand disciples, that he has not always been crystal clear. As good of a teacher... I'm going to be careful what I say here. As good of a teacher as Jesus was, the problem was not with his teaching. It was he intentionally was using figures of speech, using analogies, using metaphors that he knew the disciples wouldn't understand in that moment. Just throughout this discourse, we've seen Jesus using the analogy of a vine, a woman in labor, a house with rooms in it to instruct and to encourage his disciples. And then if we flip through the whole Gospel of John, we'll find Jesus saying things like, rivers of water are going to flow out of you. He says, I'm the bread of life. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door of the sheep. These are kind of confusing sayings, figures of speeches that the disciples didn't really know what they all meant at that moment. But they all reveal not only Christ, but they revealed Christ as he's revealing the Father. And Jesus is saying, the day is coming when you will know what those meant. You will know all the figures of speech, all the analogies that I use to know the Father clearer, better. We see this when Jesus appears before the disciples resurrected. And in Luke, we find that he opens their minds to the scriptures. He probably goes back and says, remember when I said this, this is what I meant. This is how my death and resurrection has cemented what it is, the truth that I've told you. And then when you throw the Holy Spirit coming, he would only take that and run with it even further. And all this understanding would certainly provide clarity into Jesus, what he did, who he is. But it would reveal the Father all the more perfectly and fully, even to their finite minds. And the disciples would need this as they go forward. They would need to and ultimately would know God as their father, not just Jesus' father. And knowing God as father is one of the greatest blessings we have as believers. In his classic book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer wrote, wrote this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. 
Jesus promises his disciples they will know God in this way, as their father. They would know and experience the blessings of being his child. And quite possibly the the chief among those blessings is knowing the father's love. Jesus says, for the fo- he says, you can ask in my name, and he says, for the Father will answer, for the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now our initial reading might seem controversial. Is Jesus somehow saying that the disciples' love for him merits then the Father's love? Or did God somehow not love the disciples until Jesus came and arm-wrestled God to, to love the disciples? Thankfully, we have scriptures like John 3.16 or Romans 5.8 that teach us that, no, it was in love that God sent Christ. The love that the disciples have tasted from Christ was not antithetical to God's love, but was God's very love poured out on them. The Father and the Son were united together in love for his people. So Jesus is actually providing a wonderful comfort for them. The son's not wrestling the father to get him to demonstrate love. He's not persuading the father to be gracious and to be kind. Just as we confidently teach our children to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, we can confidently teach them that the father loves me, this I know. And if we doubt it, we can look to the cross, where we witness the father's love, vast beyond all measure, as one of our hymns says. then ask the question, do you know the Father? And further still, do you know his love for you? We do live in a day where God as Father is criticized or is even altogether abandoned, even in the church. People argue that it's unhelpful. It's too patriarchal. It's too personally painful. And while I certainly want to be sympathetic, particularly with that last one, The reality of God as Father is critical. Because God as Father means we know his goodness, we know his love. He is the original Father to which all earthly fathers are supposed to model themselves after. I tell my girls this all the time. When I'm at my best as your daddy, which is far less than I would like, I tell them, you have a heavenly Father who loves you all the more. You have a heavenly father who protects you that much better. And then on the flip side, when I'm at my worst as your daddy, when I'm impatient with you, when I'm harsh with you, when my motives for you are selfish and self-interested, when I'm sinful and I'm weak, know that your heavenly father is never any one of those things. Jesus revealed the Heavenly Father to be exactly what he said he was in places like Psalm 103. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. The Lord shows compassion to his children. He knows our frame. He's a good father. In Christ, you can know with certainty that you have a Heavenly Father who loves you, who is always ready to throw his arms open to you, to forgive you, to give you his comfort, to give you his shielding, to give you his refuge, even to give you his discipline. 
Jesus knew such a relationship with his father as he walked this earth, and he promises that same relationship for all of us who are united to him by faith. You have a father who has, who does, and who will continue to love you for all eternity. Grow in your knowledge of him. Run to him. Trust in him. And back to our previous points. Ask him to supply you with all that you need, knowing that he is a good and gracious and compassionate father who loves his children dearly. And finally, Jesus gets to the third blessing, and it is the peace and victory that he himself has won. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, disciples can rest in Christ's complete triumph. Now, it's kind of funny that at this point, the disciples think they have it all figured out. They're convinced, we see this in verse 29, that this hour of clarity has come. They hear Jesus talking about going to the Father, and they're like, oh, now we believe. You're speaking clearly. We get it. We got it. We believe you come from the Father. Well, we don't want to be too critical, we, we can acknowledge that the disciples' profession is true. Just like many of their professions throughout their time with Jesus were true, even if they were spoken with limited knowledge. And Jesus, as they're kind of swelling with confidence in this moment, Jesus puts the brakes on it. And he gives them a rather harsh reality about their faith. It's not ready yet. It hasn't been tested. It's limited. It is actually going to fail. Their faith is going to be pushed to the limits in the coming hours. When the words of Zechariah 13 that Brandon read earlier will come to fruition, the shepherd is going to be struck and the sheep are going to scatter. And this would be a very sad place for Jesus to end the discourse. It would kind of cut that thread of comfort and encouragement that Jesus has slowly been weaving from beginning to end. Imagine yourself at the table or if they're on the road. We're not exactly sure where they are at this time. If, if Jesus just stopped and said, you're all going to fail me. Then just left it in silence. Talk about absolute devastation. This would be worse than the devastation the disciples would experience when Jesus would die and go into the tomb and they think it was all over. Thankfully, Jesus doesn't stop with 32. He closes out not only this portion, but the entire discourse with words of hope and restoration for his disciples who are about to fail. He tells them they're going to have peace. He says, I have said these things to you. This, these things could either be what we've just looked at or all of the farewell discourse, probably both. I've told you these things that in me you may have peace. And this peace is not just any peace. Christ's peace. It is his peace that guarantees their peace with the Father so they can have that direct access through the Son. It is his peace that will hold out to them the promise of restoration when they see their failure in light of their resurrected Savior. Just think of the account of Christ and Peter in John chapter 21. Where Jesus doesn't ridicule or berate Peter for his failure. He doesn't leave it hanging over his head, but he brings peace to Peter. 
to restore him, to renew his call to love Christ, to follow him and to serve his people. And maybe most crucial for the disciples is the peace that would be theirs in the midst of trials, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of sufferings. That were going to come simply because they were disciples of Jesus Christ, living in the world, the same world that crucified him and celebrated it. And brothers and sisters, we need to know that we have this peace. We have been given the peace of Christ. It doesn't matter that this world continues to rage. It doesn't matter that trials and hostility will endure. We have peace in the midst of those trials, in the midst of those tribulations. No, this peace is not found in some kind of mindful meditation or simply pretending that the trials don't exist. Neither is it found in some sort of positive thinking or from hiding from it until it passes. Jesus tells them where to find it. It is in me. It is found in remembering what he has taught, remembering his finished work, remembering and relying on the spirit that he has given to us dwelling inside of us. And we have the promise that this peace will help us to endure to the very end. And this is also because of the good news. Jesus promises his victory. The peace of Christ, especially in the face of tribulation, flows out of his triumph. He says, in this world you will have tribulation. It's going to come. But take heart, I have overcome the world. John is a frequent user of that phrase, the world. We find it throughout his gospel account. This is actually the 14th time it's used in the farewell discourse. That's a lot. And for John, the world is often a negative picture. It represents the created order in rebellion against its maker. And Jesus says, I have overcome all of that. Which we typically summarize as sin, Satan, and death. There is nothing that is going to stand outside of Christ's triumph. There is no evil force which will somehow slip out from underneath it. No sin, big or small, is going to somehow get out from his triumph or to resist it. Not even the greatest and most threatening death of all, enemy of all death, can overcome his triumph. Christ has conquered all through his death and his resurrection. And he has promised to give his triumph to his disciples. We professed it earlier using the words of 1 John 5. We overcome, we triumph, we have victory as we trust in the one who has overcome. Jesus, the Son of God. There will certainly continue to be skirmishes and small battles. We see them on and on around us. We will witness this every day, particularly as we read about the church universal and her struggles, which should lead us again to pray for our brothers and sisters. But Jesus has promised that the decisive battle has already taken place. He won it on the cross. And he declared his victory when he walked out of that tomb alive and then showed himself 
for 40 days before ascending to his father's right hand. And part of his victory is the promise that he's coming again to bring the full consummation of his victory for all eternity. So the question is, what can the world ultimately do to the people of God? Nothing. How can the world take away or undo what Christ has won? They can't. And that's good news for us. That's joyful news for us. This is why Paul would tell the, the church in Rome that you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We have his victory given to us. Christ has overcome the world and we are the beneficiaries of his victory. And so as we close both this sermon and this series on the farewell discourse, the call for us is right there in verse 33. Jesus says, take heart. Or literally, be of courage. It's almost military words. And it's actually a very fitting ending considering how Jesus began his discourse. In, first, in chapter 14, verse 1, where he told the disciples, let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. The words of our text in John 14 through 16 as a whole are meant to help us as his disciples take courage. To be of strong heart. The work is finished. To borrow the words of Abraham Lincoln's political announcement, there will be no labor lost. Everything done in Christ's name will prove to be worth it in the end. So if you find yourself here this morning troubled or lacking in courage, run to your Savior. I don't say walk, I say run. Ask him to confirm these realities in your heart and in your soul. And if you find yourself troubled and lacking in courage because you're outside of Christ, know that he invites you today to turn from your sin and trust in his finished work for you on the cross. You can have that access to the Father. You can have that relationship with the Father. You can have the very peace and victory of Christ for yourself because of what he's done. May all of us, though, be encouraged and strengthened by these great promises from the mouth of our very Savior, promised to help us press on, to be of good courage. You and I, as disciples of Christ, will endure faithfully and joyfully because the work is finished. Let us pray. Father God, we give you praise. Jesus Christ, we magnify your name that you have finished the work that as we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks on Good Friday, a day that we sometimes can wonder, how is it good? It is good because you declared it is finished. Would you cement the reality by your Holy Spirit of your finished work into the hearts and souls of your people this morning? May all of us know the access that we have to you, our Heavenly Father, the relationship we have with you, our Heavenly Father, the peace and victory of Christ that you have given to us today and every day until you come again. And we do pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly. Bring your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.